the techniques that have accompanied satire for a long time involve a little bit of mischief, you know. Um, so, uh, and if it doesn't have that, then it doesn't work. Radio Mano, Papa Chango. afternoon good morning good evening good night wherever you are whatever you're doing thank you for letting me join you this episode of tangentially speaking is with someone i've wanted to meet for a long time probably i don't know 15 20 years i've known about this guy and his partner in crime uh mike bonanno is one of the yes men uh trickster trickster Terrorist, informational terrorist, I guess, is what some people would call him. Um, he and his partner do things. They stage events pretending to be um, government officials or the officials of major corporations. They make announcements of the sort that basically what they do is they get in front of cameras and they present the world as it should be, which then has an incredibly disruptive effect on the world as it is. So, for example, I don't remember when I first saw this. I think we might talk about it in the conversation. But I saw Mike's partner, Jacques Servin, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, on the BBC World I believe I was in Asia at the time and it was the anniversary of the Bhopal disaster, which was most of you are too young to remember this, but this was a major, major disaster in India uh, in the probably late 80s, I think. Um, a chemical plant there released toxic gas that billowed out over the surrounding community and immediately killed thousands of people and very badly hurt tens of thousands more. And the way the company responded to this was to uh, deny any responsibility, even though it was their chemical plant, and the CEO fled the country before he could be arrested, and uh, the U.S. refused to extradite him back to India. And the company just said, fuck y'all, not doing anything. It's not our problem. We're out. You can clean up that mess yourself. You can take care of all those dead and injured people yourselves. We're out. And they wash their hands of any responsibility for the, the leak in their own plant. Anyway, uh, it was the anniversary of that. I don't know how, 10 years maybe. And... Um, Union Carbide, the company that had owned that plant, had just been purchased by DuPont, another chemical company. And I was watching the BBC and World, right? So this is going out live all around the planet. And there's a guy on there from DuPont who says, we're, we have a major announcement. Um, we've decided that since we're buying this company, 
um, it's our responsibility now to compensate the victims of the Bhopal disaster. We're setting up a fund that will uh, finance medical help for these people, compensate the families of the deceased. We're going to uh, finance a cleanup of the contaminated land and water around the plant. Uh, we believe that the way Union Carbide handled this was absolutely shameful. And yes, it's going to you know, cut into our bottom line a little bit, but it's basically, you know, a day or two worth of profits. And we just believe it's the right thing to do. And that this is the way companies should interact with the people who live around their facilities, that we have a responsibility. So this is all stuff that I listened to him saying, and I was like, well, yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. Well, finally, you know, uh, doesn't compensate for all the death and destruction and the years of evasion. But yeah, He's right. Then it turns out he wasn't from Union Carbide or DuPont. He was one of the S-Men that had been invited on BBC because they had set up some fake website. And anyway, Mike will tell the whole story. But I saw that and I was like, fuck yeah. Holy shit, is that cool? Unbelievable that, that there's like this little bit of truth that can bubble up through all the bullshit and burst on the surface and uh, really illuminate how fucked up things are. So that's what these guys do. They have a few movies. Uh, I've seen at least two of them, I think. 2003, The Yes Men came out. 2009, The Yes Men Fixed the World. And then in 2014, The Yes Men Are Revolting. Uh, definitely check them out. Their stuff is hilarious. The yes, that what did they call it? The reburger, which recycles shit from the first world into food for the third world. The survivor ball, uh, which is like this weird outfit that CEOs can can wear that will help them survive the uh, nuclear Armageddon that they're and the toxic environment that their companies are creating. They, they do this stuff at conferences with a straight face and you watch the people believe it. And it's just it's just incredible. It's, it's a form of art that is uh, very relevant, very impactful. Anyway, uh, that's enough about, about this episode. You're going to enjoy this one. Uh, if you have a sense of humor, if you're politically engaged, uh, if you enjoy ballsy social commentary and people who get up in front of thousands of people and totally bushwhack them, uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna dig it. Uh, Jacques' stage name is Andy Bicklebaum, and Mike Bonanno is the stage name of Igor Vamos, who I'm speaking to. Uh, Kyle and I are speaking to. Kyle Tierman sat in on this episode. We we didn't have a lot of time with Mike. He was in town to um, present or to actually receive one of the awards uh, at the Motherfucker uh, Awards. And uh, we didn't have a lot of time and we both wanted to get him on the podcast. So Kyle and I sat down and did this one together. Um, you'll hear him chiming in occasionally, although he was uh, he was pretty quiet, actually, in this one. Old Kyle must have been he was uh, had other things on his mind. Perhaps he, he was <laughs> this was like 48 hours before probably one of the biggest, most difficult things he'd ever done and uh you know he and i kyle and i co-produced the motherfucker awards on paper but the truth is 
he did 95% of the work. And, um, you know, I pitched in where I could, but uh, as we approached countdown and he was handling every detail, you know, from ticket sales to the the swag to flying people in and getting their hotels worked out and who's going to drive who and who's going to pick this up and when are the camera guys coming in and where are they going to be positioned and who's going to handle that and how are we going to get the lights set up and who's doing this and who I mean there are a million things to deal with and Kyle was just juggling 20 different things at once and he pulled it off um so he's a little quiet in this one because he had a lot on his mind, but he fucking nailed it. Can't wait for next year. We're doing it. They're already, we're already lining up. Uh, I think it's December 4th uh, this coming year. So if you want to be involved with the Motherfucker Awards, mark December 4th on your calendar. That's going to be a hell of a thing. All right. So what's going on? I'm, I'm in Topanga. I am getting uh, past the jet lag. I've been here a week. Man, coming east from Asia is a ball buster. I'm still waking up in the middle of the night. So, uh, what is go? Oh, I w- I wanted I made a note of something I wanted to talk about. Th- this guy got attacked by a mountain lion. You may have seen it in the news. Uh, he got attacked by this mountain lion and he fought off the mountain lion and ended up uh, suffocating it. He actually killed. He won a fight with a mountain lion. It was in the news maybe a week, 10 days ago. And uh, like, wow. And what a headline, right? Jogger suffocates mountain lion, defends himself with his bare hands. Unbelievable. Well, as it turns out, it was sort of unbelievable. Not that the guy lied or anything, but when you go beyond the headlines and read what actually happened turns out it was a mountain lion cub essentially they said it was 35 to 40 pounds uh a full-grown mountain lion is somewhere around 200 pounds i think Uh, a male maybe 250 you're not gonna fight off a mountain lion that was a mountain cub that was a mountain kitten is what you had there so I'm glad the guy survived. I feel bad for the mountain lion. Uh, I don't think it was actually hunting. I don't know what it was doing. Maybe it was a instinctive response to the guy running. Uh, maybe the guy had like, you know, catnip deodorant. I don't know what happened, but that was not a mountain lion. So the headline should have been jogger strangles mountain kitten. That would have been far more accurate. The other thing I, I was struck by this week is I saw there's some interview with somebody talking about immigration and the phrase that came up that you hear all the time in this debate is that uh, immigrants do the jobs that Americans won't do. And, you know, I've heard that phrase dozens of times when public officials are talking about this immigration thing. And generally, it's the pro-immigration side that's saying, look, you know, they come, they do these jobs that Americans just won't do. And there's something about that phrase and that's always struck me. It's always disturbed me, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was that disturbed me. And then I heard it the other night and I realized it became clear. 
The reason it disturbs me is that it's a fucking lie. It's not that Americans won't do jobs like picking vegetables or gutting chickens or what, what have you. It's that these companies are paying absolute shit. So it's not that no American will, Americans are too proud to pick vegetables or Americans can't be bothered to do the hard work of, you know, picking, getting chickens. It's that you're paying $6 an hour and you're exploiting people from from Mexico and Central America who will come up here and live five people in a bedroom and work their asses off so that they can send some money back to their village where people are starving and have no resources whatsoever. And so to them, it's a worthwhile sacrifice to come up here and bust their asses, hopefully for a temporary stay, which is what I did in Alaska, right? Which is, you know, some of the people I worked with in Alaska uh, in the cannery were Filipinos who were coming up and working hard, saving up some money and then sending it back to the Philippines where it's worth more. And so they could finance, you know, if they busted their ass in Alaska for a couple summers, they could save up enough money to build a house in the Philippines, a small house, but a house. So there, you know, there's this sort of um, economic leveraging going on between two different economies and the value of the dollar in two different places and the cost of living and so on. But it's not, again, that Americans won't do these jobs. If you pay, you know, the, the law of supply and demand is not suspended at the fucking chicken processing plant or the, uh, you know, artichoke field. People will do jobs. People will do basically any job if the compensation is high enough. So that's what's going on. It's not that Americans won't do these jobs. It's that you're not paying them enough to make it a livable wage. All right. This episode is brought to you by Mudwater, baby. I'm going to do a podcast with Shane in a couple of days, so uh, you'll get the inside story about this fantastic elixir that you can find at uh, mudwtr.com. It's a bunch. It's a mixture of organic, earth-grown ingredients. What does that mean, earth-grown? Where the fuck else are you going to grow them? Mars-grown ingredients? Lunar-grown ingredients? Anyway, they're grown here on Earth. Uh, lauded by cultures old and young around the world for their health and performance benefits. I don't know if that means sexual performance, but I'm going to assume it does because I mean, what else is there? Saxophone? What other kind of performance are we really talking about? I've always performance, anxiety, performance related to sex. That's another phrase that annoys me like performance. This isn't a, what is this? A fucking circus? I'm fucking, I'm not performing. Come on. Anyway, uh, packed with adaptogenic mushroom compounds. I think that means that they help you adapt to things like stress or uh, whatever you need to adapt to. Each ingredient was included in this blend for a specific purpose to complement a life that demands one's best. All right, there you go. They've got masala chai, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, If you've been to India, you've had a lot of masala chai. Cacao, uh, ancient elixir of the Aztecs. 
uh, was available only to royalty in the Aztec world. Reishi mushrooms, chaga mushrooms, cordyceps mushrooms, lion's mane, turmeric, Himalayan sea salt, and cinnamon. Nothing else. Interesting. Uh, I just recorded a podcast yesterday with a dude. He's a forager. Um, Back to nature is his Instagram handle. And he's in Topanga. He's teaching uh, some workshops, I think, about um, about wild foods, uh, wild medicines. Uh, very interesting cat. So that's coming soon. Uh, as well as a podcast conversation that I recorded uh, when I was in Thailand uh, on the island of Kopayam with a South African missionary who's working with the Sea Gypsy people uh, who are sort of washed ashore and lost their boats when the tsunami hit Thailand. And um, so he's sort of witnessing and trying to help them make the adaptation to a different kind of life living on land. Very interesting guy. Uh, And also as a missionary, very open-minded. You know, I sort of expected some rigidity, some intellectual rigidity, and I was very gratified to see a lot of... um, He's a very open-minded, beautiful guy. So uh, that's coming soon as well. Listen, I think that's all I'm going to say. I really appreciate your time and your attention, your support financially. If you do it on Patreon.com or you do it uh, through PayPal or you use the Amazon affiliate link that's on my website that um, does a bit of a kickback our way. Uh, Amazon does not support this podcast in particular, but the money that comes into us through Amazon is very helpful in everything that we do here at uh, Tangentially Speaking Studios. There are no studios. I'm sitting in my living room at my desk. This is it. This is all I got. I'm talking into my computer, which is also my TV, where I watch movies and uh, yeah, this is just a very centralized location. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, and this is this probably doesn't apply to 99% of you, so pardon me if I'm boring the fuck out of you. But a friend of mine here in Topanga it has a beautiful place, and she's looking for someone to sublet for a few months this summer, probably May through July, maybe August. Uh, it's a beautiful, it would be great for like a writer. If you're, you know, you're looking for a place to get away for a few months. It's, um, uh, it's Topanga. So it's not like it's in in the Colorado mountains or something. Um, but it's a very isolated spot. Uh, no neighbors screaming in your ear, beautiful view, lots of light. Anyway, drop me a line, uh, Christopher assistant at gmail.com. If that appeals to you, I think the rent is around two grand a month. And, uh, you know, it'd be suitable for a single person, maybe a couple, definitely not any kind of family situation. It's just a open kind of A-frame studio, lots of wood and, like I said, light, a bathtub, uh, you know, big computer, big Apple, iMac, um, so anyway, if you're interested in that, drop me a line. Christopher Assistant at gmail.com. All right. Thank you. I'm going to play a really groovy, beautiful song. I think it's kind of a sad song because I think it's about uh, the end of a relationship. Um, but it's one of these duets 
between a Brazilian woman and an American dude. Ben Harper is the dude and Vanessa Damata is the woman. And uh, I love the groove and I love the way their voices intermingle. And uh, really, it's even though I guess it's sad, it's sexy. And whoever said that sadness and sexiness are necessarily antagonistic, sometimes they go together. I hope things are going well for you. I hope it's more sexy than sad, but whatever's happening, savor it because you're alive. Catch you soon.
here we are in my living room. I, these guys are having a really interesting conversation, and I had to interrupt them to start the fucking podcast. <laughs> Kyle and Mike from the Yes Men. Kyle, you know, Kyle Tierman, host of the Kyle Tierman Show. He doesn't have an ego. Don't worry about that. And we're here with Mike Bonanno. It's not even his real name. See, this is two, two extremes of ego here. Yeah. One guy who doesn't care if you know his the name. Other the other person who names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have the Kyle Tierman show tattooed on my arm as well. That's so. great. Yeah. And someday Kyle will have three sons, all named Kyle. Yeah. It's going to wow. Just like George Foreman. George, wow. that's right. All right. So you guys were talking about, <laughs> we, we'll explain who Mike is. We will have already explained who Mike is in the intro. So you were talking about going undercover and some of the things you used to think were a problem and turn out to not be? Yeah, like, uh, you know, we do a lot of impersonating people in power. So, you know, if we're going to be a corporate bigwig and infiltrate an oil conference, we used to be really secretive about it. But then we realized at a certain point that it didn't really matter. Talking about it, it's it's almost like the world is so vast yeah. that even if, you know, millions of people listen to this podcast and hear about our plans, it doesn't mean that the people who are the audience at the oil conference are going to know about it or the people yeah. who are directing the conference. So we, you know, and even if they do find out, then it creates a kind of interesting dilemma for them. Mm. Like, do they try to right. shut it down? Do they try to stop it? What do they do? And that becomes part of the sort of activism is just imagining them freaking out. <laughs> right. Like seeing steps B, C, D. Like, how will this happen if they try and sue us? Well, it'll create more press. Maybe it'll yeah. be a good thing. Yeah. Like the worse it gets, the better it gets if you're <laughs> in that situation. <laughs> if you're trying to tear shit up. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys, uh, I mean, from my perspective, it seems like you guys are sort of continuing a tradition that goes way back. Uh, like certainly to the Yippies, Abby Hoffman. Is that an inspiration for you or how do you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the, the Yippies. I mean, I, I would even go... Uh... A little further back to prehistory. Oh, let's go. I know you're a big fan <laughs> of prehistory. Chris knows nothing about prehistory. So, <laughs> Chris, um, prehistory, Ryan. All right. We no, got it's, some. Uh, there are these archetypal figures, you know, the trickster yeah. characters that uh, every culture yeah. has. Right. These universal um, uh, characters that sort of do a lot of shape changing, do a lot of masquerading, disguise, mm. in order to hold a mirror up to culture. You know, so they sneak right. into things and they create, often they do these sort of comic interventions. Sometimes it's poetic. There's two different kinds of tricksters. There's kind of a mean-spirited trickster and then there's kind of a good-natured trickster. Interesting. But, um, but it's, it's, a, it's actually a universal form of human expression. And so we like to see ourselves as aspiring to fit into those kinds of traditions or those kinds of... Um, uh, I guess ways of communicating that have existed forever since the beginning of humanity. Sure, right. The court jester, that whole tradition goes right through culture. You're right. So is your power animal a raven? Oh, well, maybe a raven, maybe a coyote. Coyote maybe, uh, too, right. I don't know. Is the raven know? the trickster? Yeah, in some cultures and, and coyote. Yeah, the and fox. Yeah. The, there's yeah. a... A, a bunch of, you know, standard trickster animals that, mm. you know, you can find in different cultures that... Uh, are the, are the same throughout. And then there's some kind of unique ones or, or sort of like in mythical kind of monster types that, mm. you know, uh, some that are sort of like humans, but can have sort of superhuman powers. Yeah. You yeah. know, and you started this stuff when you were an undergrad. 
Were you doing yeah, it at, I, at Reed? Uh, I was at, at Reed College, yeah. I mean, in, in some ways I started in high school because me mm. and my friends, used to, we kind of were rebelling against the monotony of uh, growing up in the suburbs. Where'd you grow up? Upstate New York, near, near oh. Albany. Oh, um, I, I grew up there as well. Whoa. Yeah, or the, partly. The yeah, plot thickens. In the, in the uh, Finger Lakes. Yes, the Finger Lakes, central New York State. Wow. Hobart College. Oh, Hobart, Geneva, yeah. Geneva, New York, Lake yep. Trout Capital of the World. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I've been there. I've seen some lake trout there. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Not one much. of my best friends were lake trouts there. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's cool. I mean, that... Uh, it wasn't that cool growing up in the suburbs though because yeah. as a teenager in the suburbs you kind of feel like that you feel kind of lost in sure. a weird way it's like the things that are associated with culture uh, there's a kind of there's a kind of profound alienation that went mm. with that separation and kind of suburban i don't know very antiseptic kind of life and so we started to try to fuck with shit you know so mm. we went to um, like just messing with things like going to the mall with one of us in a suitcase and dragging the suitcase through the mall with the person screaming until the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, until the, was this with Andy you. or no, this co-partner this in crime with, with other friends from before that. But, and at the time it's just, you're doing weird shit because right. you're, you like, you, you, there's nothing else to do. Right. You didn't make the football team. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. You exactly. gotta have That's an identity. It. That's it. Yeah, you don't there's no sense of belonging in the football team. Yeah. So you go for like you're this misfit group and you just all you can do is mess with people, dress right. up as pirates and go to Long John Silvers and demand <laughs> free food. You know, or <laughs> like, hand it over. Yeah, and you know, just go to Dick's. Where's the dildo section? <laughs> Ex- yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> things like that that end up um that later on I, I look back and I say, Oh, that actually had a kind of political motivation. It's just at the time, you're, I was, wasn't aware of what we were doing. Yeah. I mean, I was. I knew what we were doing. We we're having fun, um, which otherwise didn't exist there in that suburban place for us anyway. But it was also, it was a, a rebellion against the monotony of this sort of cookie cutter, mm. you know, um, corporate uh, ch- strip uh, chain store environment right. that we're growing up in. So, do you think adolescents are innately subversive? Because they seem to be either angry or tricksters. Like, yeah. You know well, I, mean? I think a lot of them are. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's unless definitely you're like a bro like this guy. Yeah. Unless you're like good looking surfer dude. You're like, hey, everything's great, man. Yeah. Just leave him born in the is. right spot. <laughs> yeah. Chris just... and I were talking about earlier. I was like a. A uh, nerd born in a bro's body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did I get here? Yeah, just <laughs> let's talk about the debt ceiling, guys. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that there is like a lot of kids want to rebel. You know, yeah. and, and sometimes it's. But I, I'm not an expert on that. I don't really know. I just right. know it. You I think know. you get well, to an age where you're like, wait a minute, this sucks. Yeah. You know, and if it when you're little, suck, yeah. yeah. When you're little, it's like, oh, it's going to be Christmas and my birthday's coming up and <laughs> you know, you know, mommy loves me and like that your your circle of contentment grows until it reaches a point where you can see the world around you and like, oh, yeah, this is this there's nothing going on here. These people are unhappy. Right. Yeah. And to your point about either being a trickster or being angry, those two things aren't very different. There's no, just ang- right, there's just right. you know anger beneath the humor. 
or right. there's just straight up anger. Right. It's two ways of of using um, feeling ostracized in one way or another, right. and feeling which like is this why is bullshit. The three of us are sitting here together, actually, because Mike's here for the motherfucker awards, which is our attempt to combine humor and anger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, we yeah, haven't and, grown up. We and, still don't know what the point of this is. <laughs> it makes you know, it makes a lot of sense, I think, with the yeah, because shit's fucked up and shit. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> yeah, that's our tagline. A, a sign that I saw, you know, not so long ago. But I mean, but I think that a lot of kids right now are also really fed up. Like you see mm. these like I just saw these protests in Australia from these extinction rebellion high school kids who are like so pissed off that Australia's government is not doing shit about climate change. They're one of the worst coal burners and they're planning on burning more. I mean, extractors, sorry. And so like that kind of thing, you know, high school students right now, I think they just look at it and they go, what the fuck are we getting into? Like you old people fucked it up. Yeah. So that's why the motherfucker awards, you know, also I think will appeal to that, that demographic, like people who are coming up and going like you guys, because it used to be like, shit was fucked up and shit but now it's like much worse for them because it wasn't end world ending kind of fucked right. up it was just like yeah there's tons of problems and it's really unjust <clears throat> and much more open of, too yeah yeah and like pride we were talking earlier about exxon and how you said that, like they're actually proud of fucking up shit yeah yeah it's out in the open now oh yeah that's definitely out in the open that's that's you know when you uh, appoint a scott pruitt you know Mm. Uh, an anti-environmental lawyer to run the environmental protection agency. Yeah. You know that it's, yeah, it's out in the open. Although Reagan did that too. James Watt. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Fucking, I think it all, I think the course of, you know, modern American history pivoted in that 1980 election when I was in high school where Jimmy Carter was putting solar panels on the White House and saying, hey, we should all turn down the thermostat and, you know, let's go metric. What the fuck, you know, and wear sweaters and, you know, we got to like look, invest in renewable energy. And then Reagan was like, fuck that. I'm a cowboy. And America went for that. Took those solar panels off the roof of the White House. Yeah. (laughs) Prick. Yeah. Anyway, um, George H.W. Bush died yesterday. I'm sure you're very sad about that. Yeah. Should we cast dispersions on the recently dead? That, do we do that on our podcast, Kyle? <laughs> was, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, not. Tragedy plus time. I went, so speaking of Hobart, George Bush's niece was in my class at Hobart. It was a very ruling class, yeah. you know, country club mm-hmm. kind of thing. Her, his niece, her name is Diddle Bush. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, that's not possible. I don't Diddle believe Bush. you. I don't believe when you. When you get so no. high up in the no. ruling class, no. your sense of irony <laughs> is so atrophied yeah. that, no. No, that you don't even know what you're doing when you call your daughter Diddle. No. No, that's not possible. Sorry, it's not possible. <laughs> you think it was a scam? You think it was a joke that the Bush clan has played on the world? Or maybe she just played it on all of her college friends. She's you, like, my name is Diddle. Right. And now in in the real world, she's Margaret or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Diddle, short for Margaret Elizabeth the Fourth. Oh, so, Mike, when when did you start taking the childhood adolescence trickery to the next level? Right. Okay. So, yeah, university or college. Actually, I went to Reed College, like you mentioned before, and uh, it's and there I kind of you know found a lot of other people who wanted to engage in mischief and kind yeah. of make it more overtly political. Good choice for you. 
Yeah. I would say read. And oh, Portland yeah. also is very open to, you know, shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, it was Portland in the 80s, too. Right. Which was a, it was a trip. You yeah. know, it was kind of kind of cool. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie Drugstore Cowboy. Sure. This, you know, it was a, a different. It was just pre-grunge, you know. Mm. So it was kind of this interesting moment there. And yeah, it was a good time to um, kind of mess with things. And, you know, in, in college, you can just experiment with a bunch of things so <laughs> there was a lot of uh we had this group that we called the gorilla theater of the absurd and um that was just the name that we gave it so that we could get money from the student body to be able to fund some of these projects that we did um but for example we changed the name of a local street from front avenue to malcolm x street uh overnight you know we printed hundreds of street signs and even the highway directional signs. And we did that because at the time there was controversy over another street being commemoratively renamed for Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Mm. And the, uh, it had been renamed, but then there was this right-wing group that decided that they were going to repeal the name and actually got like hundreds of thousands of signatures, mm. which was no small feat. Yeah. Um, so they were almost successful at doing it. And we decided we'd do this kind of action to kind of, undermine it and um yeah it was really fun it was like there was a ton of media attention for that and that kind of got me realizing that we could have an outsized voice you know by tapping into the press right and uh by creating stories that would be retold in the media and so initially that mischief then turned into a kind of you know being a sort of publicity generating or making publicity stunts in a way yeah. Did you guys study journalism or did your sense of what journalists would be attracted to just sort of come about from trial and error? It kind of came about from trial and error, but also it was, uh, you know, one thing that was good about that read education is I did learn to write, which, mm. you know, was kind of cool. I, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time writing in that school. What, um, what were you studying? Yeah, at first I was studying a bunch of things. I couldn't figure out what major to declare because I was kind of reluctant to be an art major because mm. it was just, you know, that was, I don't know, it seems kind of like a cop-out. Mm. <laughs> but then finally I decided to be an art major and then it was like this sense of relief because mm. I realized that that was what I'd been doing all along, including doing things like writing press releases. But it's that the core humanities education that was really mm. strong for like developing arguments, writing and and, you know, we're sort of recognizing good stories, telling good stories. And so what we you know, what I'd started to do was recognize that the in, things I was doing intuitively, like had a frame, had a form and also had a huge history, like all these things that came before. Like you're talking about the yippies, you know, yeah. um, when the yippies at least the story goes through money, dollar Street. bills yeah. off the stock exchange, you know, um, off the, what at the time was the open observation deck of the stock exchange. And it brought the stock exchange to a halt while the traders scrambled around trying to get the, the dollar bills from the floor. Well, meanwhile, millions were slipping through their hands. I mean, that kind of symbolic action that had so much uh, media presence was a good, you know, sort of, inspiration as I began to learn about it. So it sort of, I happened into it and then I started learning about the history of it. And then that feeds back into doing more. Right. Mm. It seems like you had a really good sense for the attention economy early on. Mm. Yeah. A lot of environmentalists don't uh, respect people's attention. 
they expect that if you just give them a stat, they're going to listen and they're going to care. Whereas you went about it a little bit more intelligently and brought humor into it and brought kind of shock and awe into it, which I think could seem to work, work great. Yeah. Yeah. We tried to tell us, tell a good story and, you know, sort of happened into these kind of uh, situations that we could retell and actually making the Mm. first movie, there's a funny story. The first Yes Men movie we made. Is because, this the Yes Men Save the World? Yeah, it's well, actually, no. The first one is just called the Yes Men. Oh, okay. And then the second one is the Yes Men Fix the World, and then the third one is the Yes Men Are Revolting. We're working on a new one, oh, but so I won't there is talk no about Yes Men Save the World. I just no, pulled that out of my It was called Yes Men Fix the World. Fix the World. Yeah, okay. and uh, right. which was meant to kind of have a little bit of a double meaning, like fixing was like a little, you know, it wasn't. The yeah, game was, is fixed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the double meaning doesn't come across very well. Um, I actually wanted to call that movie Risky Business 2. <laughs> I, seriously, I was like, this would be a great name for this movie. Yeah, I know how you're going to start out sliding in in socks and sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, well, we were going to actually get, I wanted to get oh, like uh, a guy called Tom Cruise. I found this like Filipino mechanic. <laughs> His name Tom was Tom Cruise. Cruise. That's so funny. And so I was going to, you know, we had an uh, intern at the time whose name was Jennifer Lopez. Oh, and yeah. And so it was going to be like with Tom Cruise, Jennifer Lopez, to make a poster <laughs> that was just like Risky Business. And, uh, but it didn't, um, that didn't quite. The lawyers weren't into that one? You know, it wasn't the lawyers. It was the rest of the, the rest of the, the, the guys working on the movie. Andy and uh, mm. a couple of the producers were sort of like, hmm, okay. I still think it would have been a better I name. Think it's I still think it would have. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, but whatever. What was I talking about before uh, that? I totally. I, I lost it too. Um, d- demanding people's attention and oh, being smart it. about it. I mean, the first right. time that I heard about you guys was uh, someone showed me the Dow video. Yeah, the BBC World thing. BBC World News. That was amazing. That made my hands sweat just and by when, watching and it. And what was his name? His last name was Finisterra, right? Jude Finisterra. Jude Finisterra. Like, yeah. So that's Finisterra is the end of the world. Yes. Right? Do yes. you guys choose names hoping to put a little meaning in there? Or yeah. Is that- yeah. So usually what we do, I mean, so we're infiltrating these business meetings and, and we get the people who are throwing the conference or having the meeting or the event or sometimes, <clears throat> in this case, the BBC, we somehow get them to think that we are really representatives of, for example, Dow Chemical or ExxonMobil or the U.S. government. And um, and then we, yeah, we come up with a name for, you know, the person that has clues in it. And mm. that way it's more fun when the story is revealed. Right. So, like, it doesn't help to fool somebody. Like, coming having a name like Jude Finisterra, right. it's a weird name and it should trigger somebody. That's what I'm thinking. It's risky for you to... Yeah. Implant that. So Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. The oh, Catholic patron saint of lost nice. causes. And Finisterra is means the end of the world. And so we thought this is funny. Like sometimes we use these Catholic patron saint names because they're really cryptic, but they, you yeah. know, for somebody who could decode it, they mean a lot. Um, and so we thought that that name, it, it just becomes another element of the story later. And so the whole point is that when you reveal that the thing was a hoax, that Jude Finisterra wasn't really from Dow Chemical, um, you get to tell another part of the story. It's another joke that mm. you pack into the story. And did so BBC every time, ever yeah. have you guys on to talk about that? The BBC did not. Well, wait, let me think about this. The BBC didn't. Did they? 
Did they have a no? The BBC didn't, but Channel Four did. Mm. Like Channel Four was all over that. They, mm. So Channel Four and the BBC compete right. in, the, in the UK, and the BBC, <clears throat> of course, reported on it being fake, but they didn't want to wallow in it. They were like, <laughs> you know, for people who don't know, will you tell the story? Yeah. So um, we had done some work about Dow Chemical acquiring Union Carbide. Dow Chemical. Uh, in 2003 acquired Union Carbide, the company responsible for the Bhopal disaster, which mm. is the largest industrial accident in history in terms of uh, human death, actually, according to a lot of people. It's debatable, but about 8,000 people died in one night when their faulty plant in Bhopal, India, uh, sprung a leak, a gas leak. So, um, and 100,000 people remained sick for life. I mean, it was like a really big, big, big problem in 1984. Um, but 20 years went by, and finally uh, Dow Chemical was buying Union Carbide, the company that was responsible for it. And they'd done nothing to help. The, the they, CEO they, fled they, the they country. Had, they had done a few things. The CEO fled India and was uh, under extradition orders, but the U.S. was not going to extradite him. He was living on, basically in a country club on Long Island. Um, the... Uh, the Indian government had compensated some of the victims. Um, I mean, sorry, the Dow Chemical had, had come up with a compensation order under really corrupt conditions mm-hmm. where they forked over some money, but it was less than $500 per victim who had died, which was uh, actually it was supposedly $500 each, um, which a Dow Chemical spokesperson at the time had said was plenty good for an Indian. And... Um, yeah, as you can imagine, yeah, India's cheap, but it's not that cheap. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, even he, he then, probably thought they were American Indians. Yeah, well, you know? that's that yeah. might might be it. Yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> where did the disaster happen again? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. They didn't know. Yeah. I know it's weird. Okay. So, so anyway, they. Um, so, we had set up this fake website. We had been talking to Greenpeace and some other organizations who wanted to make sure that Dow didn't escape the liabilities that they were acquiring when they took over that company, mm. right? Because Dow was basically thinking, well, we're going to get all these assets and we're going to wash our hands of the responsibilities internationally, like outstanding liability claims. And so um, they realized they need a lot of public pressure on Dow, which is located in Midland, Michigan in the U.S., and they wanted to make sure that the public knew that Dow now owned the legacy of Union Carbide. And so they asked us to do some stunts and stuff to do that. And we ended up putting up a fake website for Dow Chemical that got a lot of attention initially. It was a newspaper article in the New York Times and, you know, then following a bunch of other publications. But then we kind of... About kinda, the fake website. About the fake website, weirdly. Right. Yeah. Because there are all these shenanigans with the fake... The fake website thing was a, it was a long and weird story. Because, uh, <clears throat> anyway, I don't want to get into that because I want to get to the point where two years later, mm. um, we still had that fake website up. And then a, a researcher for Dow mistook it for, I mean, a researcher for the BBC mistook it for Dow's website, sent us an email asking if we could send a representative to speak on the 20th anniversary of the Bhopal catastrophe on live television. On BBC World News, which they claimed was the most watched television program in the world with 250 million live viewers. Um, so we said... <laughs> Best we said, Christmas present ever. Yeah. <laughs> we said, sure. Did you get the email? Sure. Yeah. Did- yeah. And uh, we, you know, me and uh, Andy, he was in 
uh, I was up in Scotland at the time and he was down in, in, in France and we got this email. He lived in Paris at the time and we, we looked at him and we're like, fuck, holy shit. Okay. Is this real first? You know, cause we had done a bunch of, of these sort of things where we were like acting like da uh, the world trade organization. We had all had a whole movie that came out about it. Mm -hmm. And so, so by then we were pretty well known and this is one of those things where we thought, okay, this might be something where we're being tricked into, you know, maybe appearing in a BBC studio and it'll be some kind of joke. So we arranged to have a meeting in Paris at the BBC studios there instead of in London, which was lucky because they have a lot of security at the BBC in London. It's like going into the Death Star, you know? <laughs> I mean, not yeah. really the Death Star. It's a BBC is a good news organization. It's just that, uh, it's just that, you know, you have to show your ID. Right. They're very careful about who go, comes and goes. But in their, in their Paris bureau, it was like pretty, you know, very low key, very small. And we went in and sure enough, it turned out to be real. So, uh, you know, at about nine in the morning, we went on TV live in Paris and Andy was the spokesperson for Dow Chemical and he used the name Jude Finisterra. And he announced that Dow Chemical finally, after 20 years, was apologizing for the chemical disaster and was going to spend the $12 um, billion that Union Carbide was worth uh, compensating the victims of the catastrophe and cleaning up the plant site. So they were going to finally do the right thing. This was the, the thing that everybody knew Dow would never do. And um, so, of course, that goes out on BBC World News. Apparently 250 million people see it. The host is congratulating an unprecedented move for Dow Chemical. Yeah, I mean, they love it. Like, everybody loves this message. Everybody wants to hear good news, you know? And so the, everybody in the BBC is sort of cheers a little bit. They're like, good, finally, a good story. We love this. And then Dow Chemical's price starts to plummet on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. So their stock lost $2 billion in the next 20 minutes. And, uh, and then... Um, you know, finally, Dow Chemical, uh, whose headquarters is in Michigan, those guys have to be woken up in the middle of the night because it's 4 a.m. there. Oh, nice. That's fortunate. And so, uh, yeah. So they say, no, this isn't true. And, you know, uh, they issue a very curt retraction. And then the BBC has to kind of eat shit for a little while. And that was collateral damage. It wasn't yeah. about doing something against the BBC. It wasn't about hoaxing the media. It was just about getting the word out, right. which it, it worked for, because it ended up getting in about 900 different publications in the U.S. You know, it was the top item on Google News for the day. Huh. So um, that was the, the point is to be able to tell these stories. And so we first and to tell them in a higher volume. So more people hear it, more people know. Is, have you had significant, significant impact on the share price of other companies you've spoofed? Well, yes. Like, I mean, in that case, Dow, Dow Chemicals share price dropped by $2 billion. It, it rebounded. Right. It rebounded. But we but had a... If someone had known, yeah, an investor could have made a lot of money on that. Yeah. If we knew short traders who had a lot of money, then they could have made a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like, uh, but that would be inside but, information. Right. We know we're not supposed to do that. Yeah, and you know, then you'd be Nobody very does that. Yeah. Nobody does that. I... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny. I, um, I, I interrupted you. You were going to talk about uh, Oh, other, we did another thing where thing. we, uh, yeah. another share price drop was uh, we had once announced that General Electric was going to be giving back this 
large sort of tax rebate that they'd gotten from the government. There was a year, a few years back, they made a lot of profits, but since they'd offshored their money so carefully, um, they ended up uh, not not just not paying tax that year, but getting a big sort of like public assistance grant, you know, and <laughs> it was billions of dollars. So um, we ended up uh, announcing they were giving that money back to the public and yeah, their stock price started to take a tumble. How did I mean, you announce that? Um, we had sent out a press release. That was just a pretty simple press release. And unfortunately, there was a guy from AP who tweeted it. I say unfortunately because like, he was a friend of mine. <laughs> so the journalist who first kind of started the, it repropagating had, um, yeah, had been kind of like lived around the corner from me. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is like, there is no way for journalists to protect themselves against people who are, uh, you know, attempting to get information into the media that's false. It's not, it's not like, I don't see it as the fault of the media. The fault of the media is when they don't actually reveal the truth afterwards. So in this case, they figured out pretty quickly, you know, GE's stock price started plummeting. Um, and then they issued a retraction and along with the retraction, they usually have to explain more about the story. So the story gets bigger and this is the difference between what we do and like fake news that's out there, right? Because we see what we do is yes, we do engage in hoaxes and tricksterism and all this kind of hocus pocus. And we might tell a lie for a minute, but the goal is to reveal more truth. Mm. And so the lies that we tell are always followed up with what we call a reveal release, which is where we tell the entire story of why we did it. Why did we tell that lie? Why did we pretend to be Dow Chemical? Well, it's because there are 100,000 people in Bhopal that are still suffering and that n want everybody in the world to know that they still want to hold Dow accountable, that that's not, that story is not over. And the only way to do it, nobody's going to listen unless they're, they, the editors at different newspapers and whatever television magazines have a hook. They need a news hook. Otherwise, they can't really tell that story. There's all these stories competing for attention in the world every day. And so we just kind of help tell those stories. And, and when we do our reveal release, we make sure that the journalism is bulletproof. Like, uh, we can't be making any mistakes there. They have to be true. Right. Everything. It's truth-based. It's just that it takes a lie sometimes to get the door open mm. to be able to tell that truth. Yeah. Have you, we talked about collateral damage has there been collateral collateral damage that you regret? Have people, because when you, you, you're throwing these bombs out, and I'm totally with you guys, I love what you do, but I'm at, it can get out of control, right? Like people can get fired and credulous people, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I can't think of any examples that I know of that I regret. Mm. And, and part of the, that's because like the researcher who made the quote mistake at the BBC and invited the Dow chemical person, we never ended up being able to have a conversation with that researcher afterward. Mm. Like that researcher might've known and just wanted to like fuck mm. with shit. You know, there's a, there's a good chance of that. Yeah. Because that, that would be great. Like then you've got undercover allies all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And what, what has happened sometimes, like, you know, you sometimes feel bad about individuals and our goal is never like to, 
hurt or make fun of individuals who are, I mean, unless they're in charge of something, right. but like the people who are working, the researcher at the BBC or, um, the people who are in the audiences at the conferences where we are impersonating Exxon Mobil or something, they're not the target. They're just, you know, usually people like you or me and, and often they might look kind of weird because they're willing to go along with a really bad idea, but so would we if we were in the audience there because you know mm. you're there for a purpose you're there to get a business card you're there to make you know you're not really expecting to be hijacked by pol <laughs> political theater you know right um so it's yeah. it, it's really understandable that like yeah. and and you know psychologists have shown over and over again that grouping you know the behavior where we go along with shit and that's one of the reasons why yeah you know, humans are kind of dangerous because like we can go along with some really bad ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, history shows it over and over again. I uh, love the reburger thing you guys did. That was an example oh, where you had, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I love them all, but I, that, that one really stands out. You're talking about people going along. I remember you guys had a lot of cameras in the audience for some, somehow, I don't know how you pulled that off, but there were reaction shots and yeah. I remember one woman sort of in the back was like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Yeah. You want third world people to eat your shit? Literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, and everyone else was like, yeah, well, that's fine. You know? Yeah. That was a presentation where we, we were at a university and we were representing McDonald's and the World Trade Organization, um, which used to really represent this neoliberal, like no holds barred capitalism view of, of, you know, world trade. And there we were saying that like we we're developing a, a cheaper burger that people in the even in the third world could, you know, consume because they didn't have the money for a full on hamburger. So if you just recycle it through people, you could recycle it 10 times. Right. Because nobody so, extracts all the nutrients from right. their food. Exactly. So it's wasteful. So you just take that waste right. and you form it into a new patty. <laughs> and then, you know, depending on how much money somebody has, they can eat it, you know, up to 10 times. And that was the presentation that we are giving. And of course, that she was, was also, so great. you know, for that, that one student who you remember. I think she was. Was also from India. Indian. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. kind of like, you know, puts it all in perspective. Because yeah. it's like also, it was like that disconnect between whether Indians would want to eat a hamburger made from the holy animal, the cow, you know? So there was a whole other... Look, there's very yeah, little cow left. You took it way to down for them. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, but they did revolt. That was the, the uh, good news is that yeah. that audience, because it was students, it wasn't uh, a business conference where everybody was there to kiss our ass. Because mm. usually we go in, people think we're the most important person in the room. You know, that's the... what When we weasel our way into these events, we make sure that the conference organizers think that we are like the top dogs. And, right. and that's usually why we get invited because they see us as a honeypot to bring mm. other people to the conference. So if they can say they have somebody sort of pseudo famous in that industry, then they can invite a lot more paying guests. And this was students. So it was different. Like we're telling them they're going to eat, you know, shit burgers and they didn't, they didn't buy it. Do you ever plant people in the audience to, help the audience kind of get more amped up um yes uh we do we 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 haven't done it very much though i mean we've done it uh let's see where did we do it we did it um at this the last thing that we did in the um not the last thing we did but in our last movie the yes men are revolting 
we had a double entendre there. Yeah, Love yeah, it. that was a that was our best <laughs> title, I think. We <laughs> there we had an event where we infiltrated a homeland security conference, um, right in Crystal City, right uh, next to the Pentagon, and we I t- I told them that we had Colin Powell who was coming to speak. Um, of course, he never showed up, and then we had our substitute guy <laughs> but um but in that one you know we had a room full of like security contractors um de- defense people military people and we got like five or six additional people to sit in the audience and do things like applaud um just in case mm. uh the energy wasn't there but it turned out that everybody was totally on board anyway what were you pushing so we were there with uh these to um, native activists, uh, this guy called Gits Crazy Boy and this comedian called Tito Ibarra. Um, Tito's Ojibwe and uh, Gits is Blackfoot from up in, he's Canadian actually. Um, but uh, they were there to represent, they were pretending to be from um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And uh, we were there from the Department of Energy and we announced that the U.S. was going to end the use of fossil fuels by 2030 completely. Mm-hmm. And we were going to convert to renewables that would all be located on native land. And it would be owned by the native people as kind of reparations for genocide. And so um, then, you know, Gitz and Tito also made a speech. Um, and then they got all these defense contractors to stand up and do a circle dance. To like. <laughs> hold hands and in celebration of renewable energy and of this, of basically fossil fuels being made totally illegal. And I mean, the, the amazing thing here is that they all were actually not, they all were, but most of them were genuinely excited because they just wanted the rules to change. They know, I mean, they were like, we talked to people who worked for, um, you know, major defense contractors who are, you know, engineers, scientists, and, you know, business people, but who also like totally understood that climate change was a reality and that we had to make a shift. And if they got the chance to actually do it on a level playing field, they were ready to play, you know? So is, have you learned a lot about the power of leadership? Cause it sounds to me like you offer leadership and people follow. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's a little scary that way too, because yeah. like, you know, there's a kind of a, a, a danger that the message is that all we need is for our leaders to do the right thing and then everything will follow. And that's not really how, how it works. It works really well with ideas hmm. because somebody hears like the right idea and they immediately think like, Oh shit. Yeah. Why aren't things that way? But that doesn't mean that you can change the course of the entire system because the system is this, you know, vast machine. And so it takes some, uh, it takes a lot more than just the idea to make it happen. And so that's where all these networks of organizations come in, you know, all the NGOs, all the people doing shit at home and the leadership have to work together. Um, I mean, that's why like a lot of times people say, well, isn't what you do better than what somebody else does? Who's going on march marching or whatever. I'm like, well, not really. It's, it's what we do, but we need everybody doing everything that they do. Mm to make it happen. Like we right. need podcasts. We need, right. um, we need, yeah. uh, everything, but mostly podcasts, Mo- mostly podcasts. Yeah. I, I think nothing else really works probably, besides podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. It's and, we're better. 
I think listening to podcasts probably changes everything. Yeah. You, you know, it's one thing that's interesting. So you say you got into this in your twenties and, uh, you're 50 now. Is that right? Yeah. I, yep. The fact that you've been able to keep it fun for yourself for this long is such a cool point to this because so many people in the environmental space, social change space, they burn out. Yeah. And that's the big issue. But because you come at it from comedy, you keep it fun. It does make it more fun. There, there still are times when you kind of hit rock bottom or hit not maybe rock bottom, but you, you get, there are low moments, you know, cause you, you might work on something really hard and then suddenly see no progress. I mean, I can think of one really low moment two years ago, you know, when, when like when Trump was elected, mm. it was like, fuck man, we've been doing this shit for 20 years and we thought we saw a lot of progress, but actually, you know, forces are conspiring to have these massive setbacks. The good news is that if you talk to anybody who is engaged in a really long struggle, like the civil rights movement or something, you know, um, when they got the voting rights act passed, and it was like this big victory in the 60s, you know, um, all through the 50s and early 60s, those activists felt like they weren't making any progress. They always felt like, fuck, we're losing. And they had huge setbacks. You know, people got killed. People um, uh, legislation went against them. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happened. And really, that struggle had been going on for, you know, 200 years before that. I mean, the first the struggle for abolition and then, you know, the post, uh, war period, Jim Crow period. And, and there were major setbacks like Jim Crow, you know, the civil, civil war happened and there was this kind of sense of liberation. And then there was Jim Crow that then, you know, prevented all these people from voting. So I think that that's, you know, taking the long view, we've been making a lot of progress. Mm. Um, and so you got to kind of keep that in mind that like, it's not a reason to stop fighting, um, and stop trying to make change because the change is happening. It just gets hard to see when you're like hitting those really rock bottom moments. They can be personal just from burning out from working too hard or they can be, uh, you know, just bigger issues like the entire, you know, like right now the entire world taking this weird turn to the right um, is, you know, a really depressing thing. <laughs> but uh, probably... I mean, we can't go home right now. We got to keep, you know, stay in the game because it's a really important time to be in the game. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever think maybe Trump is sort of inadvertently a trickster in chief? He's a joke. You know yeah. Well, I mean? that's this is the thing is like what we used to do. We can't always do anymore. Like we can't make fun of Trump using the same methods that we right. use because the stuff that the stuff that Trump says or tweets every day is like a parody of itself. Yeah. And so we're not going to make fun of that. It doesn't work. I even watch, I like watch the so-called cold open to Saturday night live. And it just makes me feel a little sick. Cause I'm mm. just like, this isn't funny. When I watched the real Kavanaugh hearing, it was much funnier, you know, um, than, than what they're doing. That's supposed to be the satire of it. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, we're in a funny moment, like, because everything that worked before and especially humor, now sometimes doesn't work. Right. Uh, and so we have to shift what we're doing. And so we're, you know, we're kind of like still figuring that out. The next movie will be called The Yes Men Are Funny. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Curious. Yeah, I don't know what the next yeah. one. I mean, yeah, but 
to your point about communication, though, we had a conversation about a month ago, and you were talking about how we, we should uh, nominate NPR as a motherfucker because yeah. of their smugness and because of these communication tactics that just further divide the left and the right. Yeah. And I think that people on the left are still afraid of being um, of offending others while, as you said, we live in this whole new world where Trump is making tweets that are parodies of themselves. Yeah. And it's like they're playing different games. Like the left is showing up trying to play tennis and the people who are in power are playing football. Yeah. And that's why, like, I feel like, okay, yeah, we need to criticize ourselves too. I mean, when I say ourselves, I just mean these things that are, you know, center or center left, you know, something like NPR or something like the Democratic Party, these uh, kind of, and the reason I say NPR is just, I just think it's funny because I, like when I turn, tune in NPR, I so often feel like I'm just listening to people talking down to me. They're like so self-satisfied, you know, and it's, and it sounds so white, even if they're not white. I'm just like, you went to an Ivy league school and you learn how to talk down to people. And I'm feeling it, you know, like I, I'm, I'm from a place that's like, you know, I went to public school and I grew up in the, I spent a lot of time in the countryside, um, with people who are Trump voters now. And, uh, you know, so I kind of, I can, I can hear it and see it and I can just imagine what's going through their head when they hear these people like, you know, just, just talking down. And so I, I kind of, so that's why I just feel like, okay, this weird smug NPR thing has got to get some kind of motherfucker award <laughs> for being part of the problem. Yeah. You know, um, even though they do a lot of good reporting and I usually don't disagree with what they're saying. Right. It's just sometimes how they're saying it, you know? <laughs> you ever see the South Park episode where uh, San Francisco gets polluted with smug? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. Everyone's that. driving Priuses, and the smug gets so bad <laughs> yeah. that you can't see down the street. And then the cloud of smug floats over the Rockies. Yeah. It's, like, it's so bad coming out of San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, I mean, San Francisco started getting so smug in the 90, late 90s and early 2000s. It was like yeah they they hit that one nailed it right on the head <laughs> as they often do i was listening to npr once and it's terry gross fresh air you know yeah interview and throughout she was talking to an author who had written a book that terry gross called the chicken s-word club and i was like chicken s-word club it's a weird name for a book and it goes on <laughs> And, and every time she's like, and, and then when you started working on the chicken S word club, did you, and, and not till like two days, it turns out my editor edited that book and it's called the chicken shit club. <laughs> right. And, and the she, whole time she's gone to the chicken S word club. Like what, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. She wasn't allowed to say chicken shit. I guess not. Or it just offended her delicate sensibilities. I yeah. Yeah. The mother effers. The mofas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like dance, you're dancing around what everyone knows to be the elephant in the room. Yeah. Which makes it so much bigger because you can't see it like beyond those hills, Simba. We don't go all beyond those pale hills. Well, I want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ignoring reality and not speaking the truth is, you know, what got us here. Anyway, um, is, is there a stunt that particularly stands out for you as like your your high point? Is uh... well, you know, we have a lot of different ones that we like for different reasons, right? Mm, like, so right. Um, there's you know that Dow Chemical one was probably the most yeah. effective at 
freaking the fuck out of a major corporation, you know? Yeah. Um, we did a thing where we represented the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, in uh, New Orleans in 2006. It was the year after Katrina and uh, announced that we were reopening public housing for people to move home. And that was really interesting because the uh, it was with the governor... Kathleen Blanco and Ray Nagin sitting on the stage with Andy, who was making the announcement. And so it was really like nail biting and, and, and exciting because it was and a huge audience, like a thousand contractors were in the room. Um, How did they respond on stage? The mayor, um, I mean, they must've known immediately it was false. Well, they didn't, no, no, they didn't know. And so they kind of like, they like, (laughs) they kind of like, hmm, yeah, hmm, good, you know? And then, (laughs) And so, I mean, it was, it, it, again, it was the type of thing, well, well, if this is what the, uh, you know, this is what the people in charge are saying, because, you know, that was the, a really important federal, you know, announcement that was happening that was going to really affect things on the ground in New Orleans. Cause there's all these plans at the time to basically keep the public housing shut and redevelop it as mm-hmm. mixed income housing. Finally, they gotten rid of those pesky poor people who had been living there right. and they were going to be able to redevelop it. Disaster capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I mean, they still did that. It didn't have that impact, but it was about, I mean, for me that, that event was also about connecting with people because we, you know, worked with a bunch of public housing uh, residents who'd been kicked out of their homes who were like just so excited that it, that it happened, you know, just so excited to watch Ray Nagin and Kathleen Blanco kind of eat shit on that one, you know, um, because they were all kind of conspiring. They're all behind this conspiracy to get rid of them, you know? Um, and so they just, yeah, it was just satisfying. <laughs> Have you guys fun. been in jail? Um, Yes and no. I'm, we've been in jail, but not for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. good. Yeah. yeah I, so you've never, none of this has ever landed you behind bars? Never. Lawsuits? <clears throat> uh, yes. One. Uh, we've just gotten, one. Just one. We've gotten lots and lots of cease and desist letters. Right. Um, so the threat of a lawsuit. But we came to realize that actually that was a really important tool in our toolbox. Because if we could bait a company into threatening us then we had the elements of a story because we could right. be, they could be the bad guys. Cause we could, you know, if you pull some quotes out of those cease and desist letters, they sometimes sound really draconian. So if you're kind of doing something funny and they threaten you really dramatically, well, suddenly you have all the elements of your story. You've got your good guy, you've got mm. your bad guy, you've got evidence. Journalists can cover lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one time we got in trouble with the U S chamber of commerce um, was that in the movie? That's in the new movie, The Yes Men Are Revolting. And so uh, that's in, well, our latest movie, not right. the new one, but that's 2014 now. Right. That came out, so it's not that new. Four years old, holy shit. Um, but that, in that film, or, I mean, that scene, uh, the, U- the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, first of all, it's important to know that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is not part of the government. It is the largest lobbying organization in the world. They have an office building right across from the White House. Hmm. So I like to think that they're kind of like what we are. They like imperson except for nefarious purposes. They're like the bad tricksters because they like pretend to be the U.S. government, they call themselves the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. But really, they work on behalf of private interests, uh, big oil, yeah. coal, um, 
<clears throat> agribusiness, you know, and, and what they do is try to undermine uh, things like workers' rights and things like environmental regulation. So that's really what they do. Anyway, we impersonated them and announced that they were changing their position on climate change. So instead of blocking climate change legislation, they were suddenly going to get behind it. And uh, it got shut down, actually, by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, our, our press conference. And it was in a very funny scene. I remember the scene. Yeah. The guy, like, Let me see your credentials. Let me see your credentials. Exactly. That's right. That's a balls, man. Yeah. And that... And that, so because that was such a funny scene, because they interrupted, you know, it was carried on every news channel. And, and, and then the U S chamber of commerce sued us for it. Um, but the reason they sued us and other corporations or the government hadn't before, I think is because they actually could gain some favor with their constituency by suing us. Right. Because they, their big supporters are like the Koch brothers The you know, it's, it's this kind of, um, big corporate money. They're a nonprofit, hmm. but they're kind of, you know, the evil nonprofit that's working against the public good. And so, uh, you know, they, by suing us, they could please their membership. Um, and so they did. And then for four years we had this lawsuit going, but it never actually went to trial. And just before it went to trial, they withdrew it because I think they were a bit, scared of what could happen mm. there was also a change of judge in the mm. in the um region it was being tried in dc and the judge that i think they wanted to hear the case had stepped down and then a new judge came in and then they and and the new judge set the schedule so we were going to go to trial and then they withdrew it do you get pro bono legal we do, and the um, Electronic Frontier Foundation oh, is right. basically, they're basically our lawyers. Uh, yeah. They have, they defended us in that case. We got amicus briefs from a bunch of amazing organizations. I mean, we got a lot of support in that one. And, you know, I think that that was, that one was possibly could have set some good legal precedent um, because the chamber was coming after us for just ridiculous reasons. I mean, they said that, they said that basically we were doing trademark infringement, but they were kind of abusing trademark law by claiming that because they were, you know, all the, all of their complaints were read as if we had made copies of Nike sneakers or something. You know, it was not what trademark law was meant for. Um, to Are go. you guys covered under like satire protection? <clears throat> yes. And in fact, that's what, the EFF. I don't know why we're asking about this. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Do you, so, do you, like, do you have uh, a number for those yeah. lawyers, by the way? <laughs> yeah. No, the Electronic Frontier yeah. Foundation basically says, uh, you know, that they would argue that we had a right to political speech. Yeah. And that the techniques that have accompanied satire for a long time involve a little bit of mischief, you know. Um, so, uh, and if it doesn't have that, then it doesn't work. But, um, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's political speech. We weren't mm. doing it in order to defraud the U.S. Right. If we had been using their identity to sell some shit and enrich ourselves right. or using their identity in order to, um, you know, raise money that we weren't giving to them, if we said, we're the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right. donate to us, right. then, then we'd be fucked. There's like no leg to stand on. Yeah. But if what you're trying to do is speak about issues that are important to you, then... That's protected free speech. Yeah, and issues that aren't usually made out to be sexy. 
most like a story of what the Chamber of Commerce actually is wouldn't be on the front page without that conflict, yes. without that moment. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people forget that where they think that just that information will be enough to create change, but then no one pays attention. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. It's like you need like a story. We love stories, but stories have to have some drama you know and mm. it's like yeah you can yell as much as you want about how bad exxon Mobil is but if they don't do something to you in response to try to engage if there's no engagement then you know they then the story is sometimes uh just not there yeah know? that's why we'll be delivering motherfucker trophies to the winners yes very shortly yes that i mean that's great that's they need to get those trophies they need to they deserve them they do. They we'll we'll do. put. We should like put them in the lobby at Exxon Mobil and take photos. Of, oh yeah, like a smiling guy in a suit, like accepting his award. Well, we should get for, Simon Rex to go deliver the trophies. Yeah. and be like videoing as he does it. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. So yeah. if yeah, uh, we're definitely. we're, yeah. I know you've got a lot of trouble to go cause today. Yeah. So I don't want to. We don't want to hold you too long. But I'm sure there are a lot of young angry clever people listening to this who are gonna like go online and look you guys up and be blown away for people like that who want to get into your line of work what kind of advice would you have wow yeah well it's a it's a wide open field there's a lot of jobs <laughs> I mean, we're of hiring. not precisely us but like you hire yourself yeah, yeah. To, to do this kind of thing and i mean you know, we just stumbled into this ourselves. And I think that you, if you like put your, you know, heart and mind to doing something, you know, you, maybe you have a special skill, uh, that something you really like doing that you could do in the service of the environment or, you know, social, social group, social causes. And, and so you should definitely like, just, just go for it. You know, I mean, that's, that's all I can say. Uh, mm. it's, you know, I don't have an easy way to just plug in, but, um, but there, but a lot of organizations do. There's a lot of people doing really cool work, you know, yeah. I always say like, find the people doing the coolest shit that the stuff you like the best and then just get in touch. Right. Go volunteer. They need help. Right? Yeah. See what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. There's always, you know, and we have actually had a lot of people who just wrote to us and said, Hey, I want to help. And we're like, well, what do you do? And, uh, they tell us and often we end up working together on stuff. It's right. just, you know, it's over the years. So many people have come to us that way. Do you ever have, like, we touched on this a little earlier. Do you have people reach out to you and say, Hey, I work at the press office at Exxon. You know, what can I do? Like, how can I hook you dudes up? Don't have, use my name. Do you have like a secret way for people to feed you information or something? Yeah, it's called email. No, <laughs> I mean, sometimes people have gotten in touch and said, you know, we want to use PGP. We want to like, uh, you know, talk on secure channels. Right. And of course, it's really easy now with phones and, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of uh, applications like yeah. Signal or Telegram. Or Is whatever. that real? I always worry that like Signal and things like that could be set up by some government agency in order to attract the secret communications. You know what I mean? Yeah, every sure. time it updates, I'm like, where's this update coming from? And what is this? What doors is this opening? You know, what a great way to keep your eye on nefarious activities. <laughs> right. Like, oh, here's something the government will never see. Uh, I don't know what to trust. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think that it's unlikely. <laughs> 
next signal would have been a or you know telegram or whatever would have been a a conspiracy or that there'd be a conspiracy uh behind it but of course it's always possible you know that's the beauty of conspiracy is that <laughs> yeah. you know it's you if you can know. imagine it it's possible um but you know what's more dangerous is that all the shit that's going on in your phone, even though you might just have signal on there and you might be sending encrypted communication, you're still telling somebody where you are when you got the phone on. You, they still know your consum- consuming patterns. They still, mm. If you use a credit card, they know where you go. They know, And there's so much that you can get from that information. I mean, yeah. I love listening to Edward Snowden, you know, who, who, who has been such a good, clear voice on these issues, you know, on how much you can... Uh, learn about a person just from looking at the data yeah you know and you know it gets worse with something like facebook where you're also finding out what people's likes are i have this joke that i just wrote (laughs) it's like well it's not really a joke but i don't think there's anybody who like there's no other place where you can turn so many likes into so much hate you know, mm. like Facebook is, that's the, the thing is like, they figure out these patterns based on your, your likes. And then through behavioral micro targeting and through the siloing of only seeing your friends who are, have similar views, mm. you create these incredible divisions between people. And, you know, it's that's... part of the, part of the problem that we've got now with this super divided country or, you know, that's Brazil a good line. Too. I hope I hear that again sometime. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm going to keep looking. I, I gotta, I gotta figure out exactly how that quote joke works. But yeah, Facebook, yeah. we turn likes into hate. <laughs> it's something like yeah, that. Like, yeah, it's That's uh, what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, beyond a, just a social media company, they're a data collection yeah. company. I mean, and thinking about it through that prism is kind of interesting that that their most valuable thing is your information all the info that you've given to them yes and basically you're doing free data entry on yourself and on all your your friends friends. that's the worst thing yeah Yeah. people who are non-users right exactly facebook can track non-users movements there was just a new york times article about this and facial recognition oh yeah the facial recognition so if you're in someone's photo they put it up on facebook there you go yeah, you know what though they they just complained. I heard that um, the uh, the Polish government had just complained about the Facebook recognition, facial recognition, yeah. because it doesn't yet identify Jews. Oh, uh, well, they're working on that. They're working on it. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> boom. Oh, yeah. More Facebook jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was going to use German government, but we, you know, it's like it's, it's a little too on the nose. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've got all these weird right-wing governments that yeah. are really like just so hate-mongering, you know, and 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 so anti-environmental. So it's Oh like, man, Brazil. Yeah, exactly, Ooh. Brazil. Yeah. All right, I know we're we're yeah, just we about out of time. Kyle, you want to wrap this up? This is the a joint uh episode of the Kyle Tierman show and tangentially speaking. It's going to be fun to see what happens over the next couple nights. Yeah. We are uh grateful to have you involved in this diabolical stunt of ours thank you yeah i'm looking forward to it and we have one last guest who just joined us a cricket it there Dude, is a cricket this... <laughs> in my apartment it's true it, it gets a little crazy yeah no I, do you see it you know you, no, the cricket always it. comes out after i tell a bad joke <laughs> 
exactly. Right, well, thanks for having me. Exactly. It's, it's been super great. fun. It's been yeah. great to meet you. I, you're one of the few guests I've had on this podcast that I actually like have a little starstruck thing. I, I wow. wasn't lying. I've been That's following you Thank for you. so long and really, really appreciate what thanks. you do. Thanks, man. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, still have crickets in here, but not as insistent as that one. Not sure what was happening with, with that one. But every once in a while, I see a cricket crawling around. Uh, thank you for listening to that. And uh, please don't forget to check out Mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R.com. Shane is a, a good friend and a good dude, and he's got a good product. So if you would like some of this elixir of the gods, that's where you check it out. And let me know what you think of it. See if it uh, helps your brain in some way. Helps your brain, helps your body, increases your performance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that's it. I'm just gonna put on this little pre-canned thing with my mom talking about t-shirts and uh, beer cozies. Don't forget, we also have the tangentially reading books, beautiful books uh, with uh, Joe Rogan and uh, Duncan Trussell and uh, Esther Perel and Dan Savage and all sorts of interesting folks. Uh, so you can give that as a gift for somebody who doesn't listen to podcasts, who doesn't understand what the fuck is going on with podcasts. It's a good introduction to it or just to have something around with original art by Adam McDade. They're beautiful books. I'm, I'm really proud of them and I'm proud of the fact that they were created by a community of people who listen to the podcast. They were transcribed and edited and the art and the layout, Misfit Press, uh, did a lot of work on those books and they came out really beautifully. They're available on Amazon.com as well. But the ones you get on Amazon.com are black and white. The ones you get from my mom are full color. So if you are in America and you want a full color one, get it from my mom at tangentiallyspeaking.com uh, in the store. All right, I'm done. It's been an hour and a half. Hope you enjoyed this. I'll be back soon. Here's mom. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. <clears throat> Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Body is an animal. 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 